Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Doug and Anissa, welcome to Baha'i Blogcast. It's so great to have you and so great to meet you electronically. Um, In reading your biographies, I'm truly humbled and overwhelmed by how much the two of you have accomplished, continue to accomplish, and uh, the work you do is extraordinary. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rain. It's an honor to be a part of this. Thank you so much for having us. It's a real pleasure. Oh, really, the pleasure is mine. So for people who don't know you, and and by the way, I I do a lot of episodes where I interview married couples. I just love the the dynamic of of interviewing a couple. It just, it changes the the energy of the interview and uh, allows for so many different kind of perspectives and stuff like that. So thank you also for sharing your marriage in this podcast. But why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves and give us the your, your resumes are quite long. Why don't you give us the short version of, of where you come from and what it is that you do uh, for our listenership. My name is Anissa White. Um, my mother is Persian and my father is indigenous to Canada, to Alberta. Um, so I self-identify as Cree, Métis and Persian. Um, but in our language, in the Cree language, we would say Apitawigosisan. Um, and that translates to um, somebody who's of mixed background. So somebody who would have been French or an indigenous or English, Cree, Soto, uh, Ojibwe, and so on. And it speaks to the history of Canada. And um, so my family is from St. Paul de Métis Settlement and Whitefish Lake area, which is Treaty 6 territory in northern Alberta. Um and I went to law school and I graduated. I went to business school and I graduated. And I find myself doing work in the criminal justice system. And specifically what I do is I work in an area of restorative justice. And I do that in in respect of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. When they're moving through the criminal justice system, I prepare a special type of pre-sentence report, which allows them to be understood more fulsomely by the uh, criminal justice participants, particularly the judge. Um, and what I'm, we're looking for is more therapeutic and more humane responses to crime and criminality. And we're looking at the social determinants of health in that process, mental, physical, mm. spiritual, and so forth. So I'm really pleased to be uh, sharing a little bit about what I do and where I come from. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Doug. Thanks. And so I'm Doug White. Uh, my Coast Salish name is Cole Osselton. My new channel name is Cleishan, and a uh, name from Anissa's Mate, uh, Métis family is Lomfortishen. And uh, so I grew up in Nanaimo here on Vancouver Island, an uh, island on the west coast of Canada in British Columbia. And uh, I've been a lawyer for over a decade and a politician. I was the chief of my own people for four years from 2010 to 2014. And uh, I was a leader of the Indigenous Peoples of British Columbia from uh, the same time period, 2010 to 2013, for three years. I was a member of the Leadership Council of British Columbia, advocating for Indigenous peoples with respect to uh, Aboriginal rights and title and treaty rights, 
both uh, locally here in BC, across the country in Canada, and internationally at the United Nations. And over the past number of years, a, a lot of my focus has been, I've, I've been working as the, uh, the chief negotiator for a First Nation up in the interior, British Columbia, uh, to set out a, a process and a path and an agreement between the Lake Babine Nation and the government of British Columbia, which is the provincial government here, and the national, uh, the federal government of Canada, to uh, go down a path of implementing uh, the Aboriginal title and the self-determination rights of those people. And then uh, another major part of my work over the last number of years has been in my capacity as uh, the chair of the BC First Nations Justice Council that has a mandate from the 200-plus First Nations of British Columbia to deal with, on the one hand, the overrepresentation of our peoples incarcerated in jails, uh, which mm -hmm. is an absolute crisis, and also the overrepresentation of our children in the uh, the child and family uh, child apprehension system in British Columbia, which is a even worse uh, overrepresentation of our people. So in 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 Canada, around thirty percent of the people incarcerated in our country are Aboriginal or Indigenous peoples, when we only make up around five or six percent of the overall population. And here in BC, in terms of the uh, the child apprehension system, around 65% of the kids that are in care in this province are our children, our Indigenous children. So two very major crises that we've been working on to address uh, over the last number of years at the Justice Council. So, And I really come to this work uh, through Anissa, her work in the criminal justice system. I was mainly focused on working for uh, advising First Nations governments as a lawyer in, in that space uh, mm. across, you know, seeking to protect their Aboriginal title lands, assert their Aboriginal rights, defend their treaty rights. Um, Anissa's work, uh, really important work in, in the criminal justice system, brought me uh, to become interested in work in that space as well. So uh, it's been something that, you know, as part of our marriage, I think is it's a, it's a great part of our, our work together where uh, we're able to work in different ways to achieve uh, meaningful differences for our peoples. That's amazing. And I have so many questions I want to ask. We're going to go with the personal and we're going to go with the political. But let's start with the personal. How did you guys meet? Okay, I'll take this one. Um, I was an exchange student at University of Victoria. I was there for what should have been one term. But after I met Doug and we became, again, like entered into a relationship, then I extended my stay and it became two terms. And... Mm -hmm. I actually came from overseas because I'm one of those kids that sort of traveled all around the world, but I always retained my Canadian citizenship. So I was actually in Australia at the time and I was doing my almost last year of law school. And as one does in their twenties, you start to ask, who am I, where I come from and where are my people? And so I was like, okay, I'll go back to Canada. And it was great because I looked at, I looked across the room and it was a bit late for the class and I was a bit lost. So I looked across the room and I was like, Oh, let me find the person that looks the most kind hearted, has the best like vibe energy has like a, you know, <laughs> not going to be like, ugh, this is biology. Like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and so I just scanned the room and I saw Doug at the end of the row and he had his arms crossed and he was really listening, but he totally looked at me and I just looked at him and I said, excuse me. And my accent's a little bit more Australian then because I'd been there for 12 years. He's like, I said, excuse me, is this international law? And he nodded. First, he kind of, like, he kind of 
like tried to listen and I saw his forehead kind of borrow a bit because he couldn't understand me. So I said, is this international law? Yes. Can I sit here? Yes, of course. Please sit down. And then that's how we became friends. So, <laughs> so I found him. <laughs> that's fantastic. Is that how you remember the story, Doug? Is there more to it than that from your perspective? Yeah, well, that was, yeah, we were in international law and this uh, absolutely beautiful woman walks into the room looking for her, and I was just sort of shocked and stunned and, uh, you know, the sort of the love at first sight or it's like, wow. And then, um, but I couldn't really understand what she was saying. I didn't realize when you hear the, she had a strong Australian accent and I was like, oh my God, now I can't understand what she's saying. Like, oh, is this uh, international law? Yeah, we're sitting here. You mind if I sit in there, mate? Uh, and, and then I asked her what her name was and I had never heard the name Anissa before. So it kind of blew right by me. And I'm like, what did she say? Did she, you know, and so... <laughs> It was a bit nerve wracking there, but uh, it was absolutely wonderful to meet her. Now he meets so many Anises that it's like, now do you spell it with one S or two yeah. S's? It's like, yeah. Right, right. That's great. And um, how did you both come to the Baha'i faith? Mine comes um, from the fact that my mother and my biological father, they're since divorced, they met on pilgrimage. They were both Baha'is. Um, mm. And so I was raised effectively in a Baha'i home. Uh, and lived in Canada, Solomon Islands, Australia, and then back to Canada. Um, and my stepfather is is Baha'i as well. He's Welsh. Therefore, mine was semi kind of predictable. At 15, I went and did a youth camp at Yarrambole Baha'i Center of Learning in Sydney, just outside Sydney. And, you know, tons of assignments, tons of study circles uh, after that, not long after. And then I pretty much decided for sure. That I would this this really was part of my heart, not just my mind. This was this was really for me. So I've I've always maintained that lifestyle. And then I did a youth year of service once I finished grade twelve. That was fun too. Japan, West Australia, and so forth. You you did a youth year of service in Japan? Yes, I did three months there. How was that? It was really fun. It was in Hokkaido, in Sapporo, which is the you know, one of the, the main city there. Mm. I worked in a uh, in a high school, um, and I was teaching dance, and uh, I was also in the library. So it was actually a very interesting time because I was just really just there to help the LSA and the community start to run study circles and so forth. And then I just found myself making so many great friendships, and uh, mm. my Japanese improved. I'd taken it in high school, and so that was really neat. But I also was in Artworks. It's a visual arts theater company. And that was based in Perth in West Australia. And there was almost like intake. So every year people could audition. Um, and I sang to get in. And it was a sort of like a multi-visual. Uh, it, was, it was dancing, acting, some singing, and mostly live painting. And it was a way to express the high principles through skits and stories. And it was done predominantly in elementary schools and high schools. Oh, so we toured all around West Australia, providing that kind of arts-based way of expression. Wow, fantastic. That's fantastic. And Doug, what about you, your connection to the Baha'i faith? Yeah, for me, it certainly uh, came from uh, meeting Anissa. And uh, when it became, you know, when we began to talk more about the idea of uh, marriage um, there's all these incredible sort of connections that we found. It was really a, a sort of shocking thing to to go through an experience. We went 
There, there in Victoria, British Columbia, there was a Baha'i bookstore for a, a number of years. It's not there anymore. It was on uh, Blanchard near Fort. And uh, so we went there to go and look. I wanted to know a little bit more about the laws of consent uh, to try to mm-hmm. understand, you know, what that means for marriage when when you're asking someone to to marry you and what's required in Baha'i law. And uh, so we're at this bookstore and, you know, it's a couple of uh, elderly people working there and running and they knew um, Anissa's father, Don Todd, from 20, 30 years earlier up in northern Canada, I believe, up in the Yukon or Northwest Territories when he was working as a pilot up there. And then um, and then they said to uh, me, oh, where are you from? You're from the Nimo. Oh, do you know Ellen White? And my, my grandmother, my late grandmother, was a very famous uh, Indigenous elder in this part of the world, in the Coast Salish world, and mm. well-known around the country and even around the, the world. And uh, and so I said, yeah. And they, so these people knew both of our who we were uh, as we were there to talk about consent. And so when I, I flew over, I, I was in law school at UVic, of course, and Anissa was back in Perth. So I flew down to Perth, which is the other side of the planet from Vancouver Island. And uh, have you ever been to Perth, Rain? I have not. I know it's located just in the middle of nowhere. It's next to... It's somewhere between Madagascar and Antarctica. Exactly. It's um, it's really a beautiful city, beautiful part of the world. And there's this great park called Kings Park overlooking the, the city. And so I went there to meet Anissa's mom and and uh, and dad. So we'd already met, but we sort of had the arrange for the consent discussion to happen in this restaurant. And uh, so we, um, you know, all this beautiful seafood, grilled fish, and all of that that we were eating. It was fantastic. And uh, so it turned out, though, like during this uh, conversation, I was uh, the, the fish was not the only thing that was grilled that night. I, I got a working over oh. by her, her mom. <laughs> uh, but one of the beautiful things, though, that she talked about, she said it's very important to her that her any children from the marriage are raised as Baha'i. And if I could say confirm to her that that's how it would play out, then then she would be happy to give consent. And so, you know, we did that. And um, uh, then we, you know, uh, being with Anissa, we, we did different kinds of uh, firesides and study circles and, and learnings and stuff. And the more that I learned about the Baha'i faith, the, the, you know, the deeper it resonated with me, the basic principles, because a, a lot of it lined us up very much with teachings from my grandmother. And uh, about, you know, she was someone who, had a deep appreciation for the distinctiveness of peoples and she would travel around to other indigenous peoples around the world in the South Pacific or up North or wherever. And she would be loving and cherishing the distinctiveness of everyone, but also always looking to share and find the commonality, the common mm. teachings, what, what unifies us and brings us all together. That's beautiful. And, um, and I really do, you know, so as you know, in the Baha'i faith, that's a central principle. And so, there was that and, and uh, other things that really deeply resonated. So, uh, you know, when the, the twins were born, um, Dr. Hossein Danesh had provided a, a prayer for us, for me to whisper into their ear. So they began, the very first thing that they experienced in the world was uh, a Baha'i prayer. And then uh, on their first birthday, I, I declared as Baha'i. And I thought, well, if I'm going to raise these boys as Baha'i, I better... Uh, uh, get my own. Get my own act. <laughs> can you share what? Can you share what the prayer is that you whispered? Um, I have come by God's command, 
have been made manifest for his remembrance and have been created for the service of him who is the Almighty, the Well-Beloved. And so that was the prayer that I, I recited uh, three times. Uh, it was uh, when the boys were born, it was, uh, there, there was like teams of doctors because they're twins and so they're always heightened. And so the, the boys were being passed like footballs from, from Anissa to the nurses and the doctors. And um, I'm like, the, the very first moment, I'm like, okay, I need, and so we, I read that prayer, recited that prayer into their ear three times. Oh, that's beautiful. And Dr. Um, so Dr. Hossein Dinesh is my best friend, uh, Roshan Dinesh's father, and he just passed away about a month and a half ago now. Really beautiful man. He was on the NSA in Canada, and uh, he, uh, he, he was part of the Landeg University in Switzerland and, and other things. Uh, very, mm. very beautiful man. So really uh, uh, cherish that particular contribution he made to us, helping us to raise our boys in the right way, bring them into the world in a beautiful way. That's a beautiful story. That's really beautiful. So again, so many questions I want to ask you guys, but the first one that comes to mind is the Western world is in complete and total turmoil and chaos right now. Division and strife, at least in the United States, but I really feel it's much broader and grander than that. There are so many spiritual lessons in Native American teachings, religions, and philosophies. What does the Western world, I mean, like, I don't even know how to, I say the Western world, what does that mean? You know, European imperialist settlers in the North American continent and this, that kind of Western world. How can this Western world benefit from the teachings, wisdom, and spirituality of the indigenous peoples of North America? I think there's an enormous uh, amount that can be, when it's appreciated and understood in a real way, that will be seen to be uh, very important values that are missing from the you know Western civilization tradition. Um, our people, uh, in terms of their relationship to the territory, uh, the lands and the waters that sustain us, um, the spirituality of indigenous peoples where... Uh, spirituality isn't kind of isolated into a silo over here and, uh, you know, commerce and capitalism and the economy happen somewhere else over there or social relations uh, play out in a way that's not always firmly rooted in a sense of, uh, of the spiritual dimension of existence and lives. For, uh, I think that it's fair to say and to generalize a little bit about it that there is a, a very different worldview and approach where there's a much more integrated and, uh, and, and comprehensive approach to spirituality, um, that it isn't something that's just isolated and, and off on its own, that it's something that infuses uh, everyday life and, and all relations between people, uh, who, the way that you think about yourself and your purpose and your relationship to your people in your family, people in your community, people in the world, others, and then your relationship to the world itself and how you're meant to live your life. Um, the when we think about things like the some of the core components of our relationship to our territory, the way that it's expressed through Aboriginal title uh, is that there is built into that relationship with land and water a notion of uh, that there's a duty of continuity that the existing Aboriginal or Indigenous peoples 
owe a duty to safeguard and preserve the Aboriginal title for future generations. So we can use the title, we can use the, the lands, but we have to use it in a way that preserves the inherent value of those lands as Aboriginal title for people that are not here yet, for, for future generations of Indigenous peoples. And I do think that there's something, um, you know, there's something very uh, uh, analogous to the idea of something like the public trust doctrine in the United States, this notion of, uh, is there anything that constrains state behavior in relation to state land, that there's a, a public interest value that has to be protected? Um, it's kind of similar to that, but it's very much rooted and deeply rooted in a, in a different tradition that comes from Indigenous peoples. And um, we're in Canada for sure. Um, you know, just recently, uh, last week, there was a remarkable decision from the Supreme Court of the United States uh, where... Uh, the Supreme Court uh, recognized that uh, much of eastern Oklahoma is Indian territory. Is uh, It was promised to the indigenous peoples of that part of the world. And, mm. and the Supreme Court said, look, we haven't been able to see, no one's put in front of us anything contrary to the promise and the, and the decision that was made a hundred and something years ago. And so mm. we expect the, the government and, and you know, the United States to live up to that basic premise and that idea. And so it, it is, as of today, continues to be Indian territory. And, um, but in Canada, we've been through a number of different streams of reconciliation that have been percolating over some, in some cases over decades, like in the legal sphere, um, but also more recently in the political and the social side. And the political side, it has to do with uh, shifting away from patterns of denial of Aboriginal rights to a pattern where we're saying we're now going to move into a, a relationship that's premised on recognition and implementation of rights, and uh, we're and we're going to endorse the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. We're going to bring that into Canada, and in British Columbia passed a law last year to that effect. But we've also been through major social processes in our country, like the. Um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was born out of the need to grapple with and understand the horrors of the residential school experience in this country, similar mm. to what happened in the United States where Indigenous children were rounded up and sent to boarding schools, where um, in Canada the official policy was to affect, they said these words, the purpose of these schools is to take the Indian out of the child. And so there was a cultural genocide that played out over many generations in this country um, that had uh, very devastating effects on the emotional, psychological uh, well-being and the cultural integrity, the integrity of families um, that was very devastating. So we've gone through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process uh, that was aimed at understanding that past and figuring out how do we move forward as a country together, given that past what kind of a life do we want together and how do we need to reorient relations to ensure that that doesn't happen again, but uh, more importantly, that we embrace a positive idea of positive relations. We've also been through uh, recently the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls inquiry in this country, which mm. uh, is looking into uh, the very grim reality of, uh, of the, the violence that Indigenous women have experienced in this country. And when, and when they have, often the, the justice system has not given them proper attention. They have not been investigated in a way that 
a non-Indigenous person would have been if they had gone missing or been murdered, the kind of sure. attention they would have gotten from the justice system to inquire, to investigate, and to hold people accountable. So in Vancouver, in the downtown east side, there was a very grim uh, mass murderer named uh, Willie Picton who uh, who murdered uh, around 100 uh, women from the downtown east side, the sort of the mm-hmm. skid row or the poor, very poor part of Vancouver. And he did this... Um, Part of his rampage of murder of uh, that number of people was enabled by the fact that uh, most of the victims were um, sex workers and uh, uh, drug addicted and and poor people. Not all Mm -hmm. indigenous, but um, very, very many of them were indigenous. And the police just did not, they did not give attention to what was going on in that part of the world. So the the that inquiry that was undertaken was uh, there's also the the highway of tears as it's known in northern british columbia where numerous women have gone missing from a certain highway that's a major thoroughfare from prince george to prince rupert highway 16 and um so a lot of and, and there's been other examples across the country of similar patterns so it came to a point in our country where we said we have to look into this and understand it and and set out and chart a course to correct what's been going on um, so all of these different streams of reconciliation, we also had a major Aboriginal title case in the Chilcotin Nation decision in 2014 that um, was very historic and very important. So all of the political, the legal, the social, all of these different streams of work have kind of brought us to this really defining moment in our country where um, where we have a real opportunity now to to set the stage and to build a new foundation for the right relationship between indigenous peoples and, and the crown, as we call it here in in this country, the state. Mm. Mm. There's so many topics you brought up. um, And I want to return to your work with the missing indigenous women. I know that's an epidemic as well uh, in the United States. I want to get back to that uh, really important topic. A lot of people don't know uh, about it, but Anissa coming back to the question of lessons that white North America could learn from indigenous spirituality, traditions, and philosophy. Um, Growing up Baha'i and then kind of coming back to your roots in Canada, you said you're kind of on a journey to kind of come back to ground yourself in in your father's side of the family and and your roots, your home, and coming into... um, working with the native people, First Nations people, um, what, have, what have you learned? How has your Baha'i faith become enriched from what you've uh, come across in the native traditions? It's such an important question. It's one that I always, always ask myself, like how am I contributing and helping my Indigenous family community um, and extended family system Um and how, and in many ways, how are they enriched? How has that experience been enriching and, um, you know, helping shape who I am? Like I'm 38 next week. Like I've, I've definitely had a few years to back in Canada since I was 23, 24. It's a long time to be able to, you know, travel, um, to experience ceremonies, uh, sweat lodges. I've attended sun dances. Uh, I haven't done sun dancing myself, but I've attended to help as a helper, which is an important role. I've tagged along with my aunt to various uh, aunties and uncles 
And for people who don't know about a Sundance, can you just tell us real quick for listeners that might not be familiar? Um, first of all, it's one of the most iconic and significant ceremonies that was practiced in the Plains region of mm-hmm. North America, both in the States and Canada. It's also one of the ceremonies that was outlawed uh, in Canada for many, many years as being a, because it was of spiritual nature. Um, it was um, prohibited to be practiced and people could be um, put in jail for practicing that that ceremony. Um, it, From my understanding, and this is a very, very outsider perspective, like a helper perspective, I remember going to Merritt in British Columbia and seeing many, many people who had been fasting for many days. And they were doing uh, a ceremony in which there was pr- many, many prayers, hours and hours of prayers. Um, it w- There were so many elements to it that spoke to the... Um, sacrifices that an individual would make. And it was often to help someone else's healing. Like it was to help their own healing to overcome grief or loss. But many times someone was sun dancing for somebody. And, and I think that what I now can say, looking back that there are so many, you know, offerings that are made um, so many traditional medicinal plants that are used in that process that have significance. Um, and many sacred songs and dances are brought out, so to speak, and people with the right kind of rights and prerogatives to use or, or bring out those dances and songs, they essentially will lead the other people who are there to Sundance. Um, that's what I observed. Um, and I, the, the thing that's enriched me the most probably is I can be it can be summed up quite simply that oneness and connection has to be a norm in every interaction, in every law, in every policy, in every community gathering, in every decision a society makes, whether it's about children or it's about elderly or it's about food security or it's about land use. There has to be a for me, I've learned, the notion that you have a relationship to somebody and to something and that everything has has sacredness to it, that nothing can just be used and harvested. Exploitation is just not sort of part of the vernacular. So I've really been enriched by um, uh, being in spaces where you genuinely can feel that your nervous system is in a complete state of being accepted by, by the group. Mm. And once you've experienced that, once you start co-regulating with other individuals in that space, in a ceremony setting, it stays with you and you can recall that when you need to recreate that sense of unity with another human being. So that's what I really had to, um, I've been enriched by. Oh, that's beautiful. One more thing I was going to say. Um, there's another there's another thing that's that I probably I should probably say that I've been enriched by is that um, I recently became about five years ago I became initiated as a jingle dress dancer in the powwow circuit or in the powwow world and what that is is that there are gatherings for indigenous people and they and we practice a set of uh, dances that are sort of old style they're called and there's contemporary and we wear regalia and we wear specific types of um, pieces of clothing that have that show what kind of category that you're in. 
the word jingle is really comes from in the old days, it used to be um, shells that were used on dresses and they made a certain sound and they're sort of a representative of uh, healing. Um, and over time, when the missionaries um, prohibited the practice of the jingle dress dance, the healing dance, what happened is that people started using the top of tobacco can lids and curling them over and turning them into a cone. So it's a jingle. It's not a jingle bell. It's just a jingle with no bell in it. But when it sways and moves, whole 365, it creates a beautiful mm-hmm. sound. I wanted um, I wanted to add a little bit to my answer from earlier, too, that along the lines of what Anise is talking about. Um, yeah about the way that uh, answering your question about how can we learn from indigenous peoples, the, some of the, their ideas or the values or their principles for the world that is experiencing so much strife. And when I think about the defining moment we're in in our country, that is so full of opportunity about how to, to reset relations. I think about two things. One, something called the Laurier Memorial of the indigenous leadership that was speaking to the Prime Minister of Canada just over 100 years ago in Kamloops, where they told the story of uh, the way the chiefs were thinking when non-Indigenous people first started arriving in this part of the world. And they were trying to figure out and imagine what will life be like with other people here. And they talked in terms of family and like family relations. They said, it, it seems that these people want to live here and stay here with us. So we must treat them as brothers and sisters and everything. What is ours will be theirs and what is theirs will be ours. And we will share in common um, everything. And, but what they talked to them was the most beautiful phrase in, in this particular passage of the, of the memorial, as they call it, the Laurier Memorial, where they say, we will help each other to be great and good. Like there was a very firm notion that, if, if we recognize and reach out in brotherhood to these people that have just shown up from nobody knows where, but if we embrace them as part of our family and if we treat them as such, it'll be massively beneficial for both of us. We'll, we will be able to be great and good together. So that's one mm-hmm. amazing sort of storyline that I've always sought, uh, you know, took inspiration from in the work that we're doing. Um, I now, now I want to share another, um, this is sort of a reverse of that where, or not a reverse, but where Baha'i teachings have informed my own work as an indigenous leader. Uh, oh, comes great. from uh, this book, Love, Power, and Justice by William Hatcher. Um, so when, and, and just very simply to tell the story quickly, um, I kind of grew up um, learning how to fight and to protect myself, to protect my family, my cousins, you know, grew up in a rough side of town and all of that. And so fighting was always a pattern. Because of racism. And because of racism and, and all of that. And um, and then, you know, my grandfather was the chief of our own people and he raised me up to, you know, you all, you've got to look after your people, you look after your family um, all of that and, you know, look, you know, look, you know how to defend yourself and protect your people. And it was all very much a fighting orientation because we were in kind of a survival mode. Our way of life had been threatened, had been decimated. We'd been dispossessed of our territories. And, you know, we, it, there was all of these things that we had been subjected to that put us into a survival mode and where mm-hmm. you have to sort of, you're standing up and you're fighting. 
And um, going to law school for me was a part of that pattern where you learn how to fight in a different way. Mm. And so when I, when I was first chief and came back to Slanemo to take on that work, uh, I very, I, you know, I, I then had all of these different tools and capabilities and whatnot to do that kind of work in a fighting way and made very significant progress um, in, in doing that, in asserting our rights and, and whatnot and, and, and making significant change. We quadrupled our people's land base and et cetera. Um, but on the day, it was like March 27th, 2013, I think, uh, we signed a reconciliation agreement with the government of British Columbia that did that work of quadrupling our land base and a number of other things to reorient relations. On that very day, the local newspaper decided to publish a very ugly racist letter to the editor. They knew that we had important historic work to be done here, but the local mm. media said, we're going to publish this letter that says uh, Aboriginal peoples have never contributed anything to civilization. Uh, you know, they're worthless. They haven't, you know, they haven't done this. They haven't done that. They're yada, yada. It was mm. unbelievable. It really, it was intended to hurt and it did hurt. But it made me think about the nature of my work as a leader of my people and, and what kind of work I needed to do that simply being in a having strong politics and strong law is not enough. That there is something about reaching into the social change dimension in a, in a serious way that's required. And in Love, Power, and Justice, um, there's important discussion about uh, uh, that is related to the way when we went through the murder and missing Indigenous women and girls inquiry and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, the the leaders of the country, the, the Chief Justice of Canada and the leader of one of the commissions, they stood together, uh, Murray Sinclair, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and they stood up and they talked about that this has all am this amounts to cultural genocide and we have to grapple with that reality. Mm. And in other contexts, uh, Chief Justice talked about the need for tolerance, which is obviously a very important thing. She said, we need f to, to really work on becoming a more tolerant society. And, um, and I thought about that and, and I had a chance to read this, uh, this book. I want to read a little, a passage, uh, from William Hatcher's book. Please. Um, he says, though it may seem difficult to conceive at first, the two components of love are quite independent of each other. This is due to the extreme flexibility of human nature. And, and the two, uh, components of love are the active component and the, uh, the passive component. But here he says, this is the, the important part that has always influenced me. He says, acceptance without concern is what is usually called tolerance, while concern without acceptance is conditional love. Tolerance occurs when we renounce the desire to change, convert, or dominate the other, but have not yet developed the capacity to work actively for the improvement of his or her well-being. Conditional love means that while we have re recognized the spiritual potential of the other and are concerned for the development of that potential, we have not yet reconciled ourselves to what we perceive as the other's limitations. And so um, it talks about how where we need, we need to move beyond both tolerance and unconditional love and to move into an authentic relationship of altruistic love where we both accept the other individual, but we also have uh, concern for them and care for them.
in mm. a, in a, mm. in through altruistic love. And so that basic idea um, has been very important for me in reorienting the way that I, that, that I work. And I think that it has a, you know, when we think about the way that it puts forward a vision for proper relations uh, for the world and for society, uh, you know, as you said, we're, we're in the United States, we're seeing like really sharp division and a, and a sharp lack of, um, of, of either tolerance or, or of course, even care or concern for the other. And so I do mm-hmm. think that those very fundamental, beautiful ideas of proper, authentic relationships based on recognition, respect, and love for each other um, can, uh, for me, really inspires me in terms of the work that we do here in Canada. And, uh, and, and so I wanted to add that to my, my earlier uh, mm. answer to an earlier question. Now, that's, that's, that's really beautiful and important. And I would love your perspective, both of you. You work in the justice system. You work in criminal justice system. And justice plays such an important part in the Baha'i faith. You know, Baha'u'llah, of course, or God himself says the best beloved of all things in my sight is justice, which, you know, as, as, as you know, can be translated, I forget the two Persian words, into either fair-mindedness or kind of justice like laws. Um, what is your perspective as a Baha'i uh, working in the criminal justice system? How that, what, you, what you spoke of there, Doug, is kind of a, a union of uh, some spiritual ideas of marrying love and justice. And you said that's influenced your work in the criminal justice system. How do we need to change the criminal justice system to incorporate uh, these kind of fundamental spiritual ideas? And I think Anissa is the best answer because for, I mean, what comes to mind immediately is the work she does in, in Gladue reports, which are specialized sentencing reports for indigenous peoples that, uh, that, that their, their whole, the whole gist of them, the substance of them is trying to understand that individual in a real and an authentic way. Who are you? What is your story as an individual? What's your family story? What's your community story? And how has all of that structured the reality that you're in? And so it is, you know, the, and then the second part um, that Anissa can speak far better to than, than me is that reorientation from a punitive justice system that is about retribution to one that is premised on uh, uh, restorative principles, uh, reconciliation, where we're looking to, you know, the, in the indigenous tradition, Criminal matters were largely dealt with in a way that, um, you know, when when there was clear opportunity to be able to repair relations, then that was the goal and the intent to figure out, you know, we can't have a functioning society where um, where we're not restoring the the balances and where people are not uh, where, where there isn't clear respect and uh, love for each other, and so um, this shift from um, uh, punitive approaches to justice to one of restoration and reconciliation is a major part of the work that uh, Anissa is already doing. And it's a major part of the the work of the, uh, just uh, on March 6th of this year, 2020, uh, the First Nations Justice Council signed a new First Nations justice strategy with the government of British Columbia. And it certainly uh, intends to reorient the, the criminal justice system along those lines. So mm-hmm. maybe Anissa can mm. give a, another mm. perspective. Fascinating. Please. Growing up, I think I've always been concerned with the relationship between unity and justice. 
Hmm. And I've always asked myself this question, whether it's pouring over my law texts or attending um, community-based justice programs um, or jails, touring them, um, and so forth. I've always asked myself, how can a society, how can a society reasonably be expected to create conditions of unity when there, there are consistent systemic factors and barriers that separate us from each other. In other words, can you have unity without justice? And, and by justice, to unpack that for a split second here, I'm looking at you know equitable um, uh, access to justice. Um, I'm, t- I'm talking about having, um, you know, those kinds of concepts. Like, so I'm always Mm -hmm. asking myself that question and, you know, there's many, there, there are many trends in Canada right now with, in regards to indigenous populations and black Canadians, whereby we're seeing an increase in the number of, uh, specialized or enhanced pre-sentence reports. In other words, probation officers would typically do a risk assessment on an individual who's been mm-hmm. charged and has been found guilty or pled guilty. And then those go to the judge. And then so the, there's sort of that typical uh, decorum between crown and defense and judge. And it kind of becomes a triangle. My report and the reports that I'm referring to for black Canadians, although slightly different in, in template go to two real questions. And this is like this little, really this small little space in the criminal justice system that I'm trying to, bring some light to the table Mm. and I'll just summarize them for a moment. The first thing that I'm looking at when I'm presenting this report on an individual male, female youth is what are those unique systemic and background factors, which have played a part in bringing that particular subject or offender, if you like bringing them before the court. In other words, are there, are there, is there something baked into the system that has shaped the reality of an indigenous person to the place that they find themselves in front of a judge. And and so the second question then becomes, all right, what are the types of sentencing procedures and sanctions that are appropriate in the circumstances? Because the law says you must find a fit sentence for an indigenous person, for all Canadians in front of a judge. But for an indigenous person, we recognize that historically and ongoing, we are seeing the effects of colonization shaping the, the reality of for, for our people. Wow. So I'm wow. looking, so I'm actually going into the place of, of asking what types of indigenous community laws, like a contemporary manifestation of an old indigenous law or principle, how can that be brought into the courtroom and brought into their conditions? Like, is there something like one example would be, I've presented this, I've t- consulted el- elders that from, from an individual's community. Yeah. And they've said community service is a common, a common thing that's, that's often um, granted in when a judge hands down a sentence, but wouldn't it be more important if that community service was served back in the community where the harm was done and it was something specific to rebuilding the culture, language and spirituality of that community. Mm-hmm. So, so we've seen, yeah. cut, we've seen wood cutting for the longhouse ceremonies. We've seen, um, individuals become like, um, provide services and help to elders for like a, a set period of time. So those are some of the alternative creative ways that you can bring a more culturally aligned response 
to healing versus simply just saying, you're going to go to a federal correctional facility and you're going to get rehabilitated. Because we know that jails typically make nonviolent people violent and they mm-hmm. often will make violent people more violent. So that's where we're trying to do things differently. And in, in Canada, we have, you know, in the United States, obviously inc- uh, over-incarceration of everyone is a serious problem, especially uh, black Americans. Um, in Canada, uh, we had a conservative gov- federal government for a number of years that really was in that kind of law and order uh, punishment sort of mode. So they put in mandatory uh-huh. sentences and, and all of this and sent things off in a trajectory different than the GLADU principles as they're called. And so we're trying to repair and reorient and, and shift back into a more uh, humanistic approach to justice that really uh, tries to pay respect to the humanity of everyone and tries to figure out, are there challenges that we can assist you with? And I think is is very much a loving and restorative approach where uh, we, we, we're showing care and concern for the individual. It isn't just an approach of uh, you're going to be punished and you're going to be sent to jail. Um, it's an approach that uh, like Anissa can, can make manifest through her work of showing love to that individual to really understand who they are and how we can help them best uh, so that we can uh, help them get on, the, on a different path and, uh, and also to seek to uh, restore relations in the community. It seems like a report like that would greatly increase compassion to everyone all around, just a, a deeper understanding of the forces at work that put that person in that particular situation, how the deck was stacked against them from the get-go to, to bring them into that, that position. That's, that's fascinating. So I have never had the opportunity to interview a chief before. You were an actual chief what was that like? And were you and you were a Baha'i at the time? And did that influence you being a chief? Were you maybe the only Baha'i chief on the planet? How does that work? <laughs> you weren't Baha'i yet. Yeah, I was. Uh, I declared. I was declared as Baha'i halfway through my term as chief in 2012, April 23rd, 2012, and mm. so. Yeah, it was a it was a very uh, remarkable experience. I come from a family. Um, my uh, my grandfather's grandfather, uh, Paul White Tequap, he was a hereditary chief, and uh, my my uh, grandfather and his uh, older brother Edison White, they were two of the chiefs in the fifties and the sixties. And so I was kind of raised, um, and then on my mom's uh, side of the family, in the Channel world, also different kinds of leaders. And so I was kind of raised to always be service-minded and, and community-minded. And when the opportunity came, um, it was a remarkable experience. I always think of the how difficult law school was and how challenging it was. And, and, and before that, grad school, when I was in the master's program in public administration, and uh, then the law school is difficult and articling is difficult, and then practicing as a lawyer is difficult. But when I shifted from that to uh, back to Nanaimo to become the chief of Nanaimo, it made all of those things seem like kindergarten. It was mm. a it was a very uh, challenging kind of work, very rewarding, and uh, you know you're serving, um, uh, you know, people with very uh, serious needs. Um, you know, the, the people that have the greatest needs of anyone in the country, and so there's a lot of urgency to the work. Uh, you know, you're, you're massively underfunded 
and you're dealing with, uh, as the chief of a, of, of a nation, I, I tell a story where, um, to give people a sense of the scope or the breadth of the kind of work you have to be involved in as the chief, I mm. told them one day I got a phone call uh, from a member who called up to say, uh, chief, there's uh, there's something wrong with my toilet. And uh, I'm, I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, you're calling me about your toilet? I'm like, okay, I guess you're calling me about your toilet. And uh, and so I talked to them and I, you know, I told them what I thought about uh, in terms of, you know, how we can help and who they need to get in touch with uh, from the maintenance people of the nation and all of that. And I said, look, you know, I, I, I'm so sorry. I've got to get going, though. I've, I've, I've got a speech to give in a minute here. And he said, oh, chief, so sorry. Where, where are you at today? Where, what are you up to? And I said, well, I, I'm in New York at the United Nations. I'm about to give a speech and, and at, the, <laughs> at, the, at the permanent forum of indigenous peoples. And, and so it's everything from that, right? Like right on the Indian reservation, on the reserve, dealing with the individuals, uh, you know, very kind of, run-of-the-mill needs, something's wrong with my toilet, and then one moment later, you're turning, you're sitting at the United Nations giving a speech about the doctrine of discovery and, uh, you know, at the international level. So it, it was a remarkable experience and very, um, uh, very rewarding. And, uh, and as I said, I sort of began in very much a fighting mode and protecting and, and, you know, did very, was very successful in that regard. But I came to learn and, and through that work, uh, to realize that there's all there's a very important layer that I was missing, and that was very much informed by the teachings of the Baha'i faith and by uh, Baha'i individuals like William Hatcher, um, that really informed me that there is a, a lot of work to be done in reaching out to Canadians to build those kinds of authentic relations because we would never the way that I always talk about it as I say uh, when I think about the world that I want to create for my children and grandchildren, we are never going to be able to create that world by um, uh, powerful political speech or by bashing people over the heads with uh, with lawsuits and, and that kind of fighting mode will never bring about the kind of world and the kind of life and the relations that I want for grandchildren. Like I want, I want my grandchildren, my children, not that we have any grandchildren yet. <laughs> I want my children to be loved by Canadians mm. and I want them in turn to, um, love Canadians back. I want them to be in a loving relationship where their hearts and their minds are turned towards each other's and each mm -hmm. other's well-being. So how do I do that work? Um, how do we, how do we do that differently? And it's the, I really do think there's an enormous role in social change um, of communicating to uh, the public in, in different modes like it isn't going to be a, a lawyer or a politician that's going to change the world in that way. I really do think that the arts in particular have a very special role in bringing about deeper understandings. That And, and one of the things I always think about is um, when I was a young boy in the public school system, we read a book uh, called Obasan by Joy Kogawa, a Japanese-Canadian, who the, the story that she tells in this book is the story of uh, the internment of Japanese Canadians during the Second World War and after the Second World War and her experience mm. with that. And I read that book at a certain I point. I didn't know Japanese Canadians were also interned. Yes. Lots of them were, you know, they were wealthy, successful people that were that owned fishing boats and businesses and everything. All of that was taken away. They were shipped up to 
the interior of British Columbia into effectively a prison camp, an internment camp. Mm. And so when, when I read that book, I know what it meant for me in terms of, you know, it became, uh, it became a part of what the very core of what I think it uh, means to be human. Uh, it, it, what it means for justice to be present or to be absent. And so it's a very core narrative that informs who I am as a human being, because I read a novel when I was a young boy uh, from the Japanese perspective, Japanese Canadian mm. perspective. And so now when I think about, um, you know, all of these different books, some of them are legal texts, dry legal texts, some of them are bodies of legislation and jurisprudence and all of that. Most Canadians are not going to read those kinds of books and go, oh, okay, and, you know, have a, a moment of insight. But if they read a book like uh, Richard Wagamese's uh, Medicine Walk or other kinds of novels, or if they see a movie like uh, Atanarjuat, The Fast Runner, about the Inuit way of life, or if they see a film of uh, some other kind, then it's going to be able to reach them in a fundamentally different way that is, I think is very powerful and that can really bring about the kinds of cultural and social changes that are necessary to, um, uh, for us to, to create that different world for our, our families. Mm. Wow. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. You talked about raising your children to be loved by Canadians and to love Canadians. I will say that, first of all, Canadians are a lot e easier to love than Americans. So that's not that hard <laughs> to love you need to teach your children to love Canadians and love people south of the border too. It's a little, it's a little, gets a little trickier. Okay. So, um, but Anissa, you're, you're raising your children, um, as Persian native first nation, Baha'i humanitarians. Uh, what's that like? What, what do you want for your children on their journey? It's been great. Um, well, I can tell you that the quick answer is that we decided to homeschool our children long before the pandemic set in. Uh, we mm -hmm. made a decision that we wanted to take greater control over our, the information and knowledge that our children are being exposed to. And we felt mm -hmm. that we could adapt or, or, or incorporate a more indigenous pedagogy and worldview in all aspects of their education. So for an are example- you, Now wait, are you doing this yourselves or do you have a teacher that you work with? Because you are two of the like most high-powered, busiest lawyers on the planet. How is this possible? It is possible um, through a program that is a BC Ministry of Education-sponsored program that provides a great number of resources, thankfully, so I don't have to make mm -hmm. it all up from scratch. Um, but in terms of the, the piece about incorporating our worldview, it's almost like science, math, reading, social studies – they start to come together in a different way. And so, for example, you might, we, might have, we might have to be teaching the children something around architecture and, mm -hmm. you know, whether a building is, is worthy to withstand, like, say, a cyclone or, or a storm or something. And what we would start to do is to look at some of their own Indigenous ancestors' dwellings um, and how Indigenous people were so resourceful and just thought of everything and they were mm. so practical and they were real. They had technology figured out in, in mm. you know, specific to the land base. They really understood what it was, what was needed to be able to live safely and comfortably within their territory. So there's sort of this land-based learning um, ethos 
that has mm. become uh, front and center in the kids' learning. We've really benefited from my family's show, my Aunt Loretta Todd and her daughter Kamala Todd, who uh, are behind Coyote's Crazy Smart Science Show. It, what it is, it's an adventurous series where uh, Indigenous uh, architects, engineers, ethnobotanists, um, pilots, and so forth, there are interviewed in the course of the episode. And then there's a visit to the different sort of regions of Canada or, and so on, where they look at the different ways in which uh, Indigenous people have always um, created responses to problems using a reasoned approach. Uh, they've adopted technologies. Um, they've known how to work with the, the land-based resources, whether that's being building dwellings or um, how to find water or things that we may not put a value on today, but Indigenous people have incredible uh, innovations and inventions that the more we put value on them and we recognize them, particularly mm. in, in our children's education, that it starts to heal some of the negative narratives that Indigenous people have somehow been primitive or behind. Um, when you start digging, there's an incredible amount of evidence to suggest that so much of modern day technology um, down to breast cancer medicine has been uh, drawn from the traditional knowledge of Indigenous peoples, in BC in particular. So I'm always heartened by that. And that's why we chose homeschooling. Like their education is submersive. Um, and that's how they're sort of shaping their identities. So, I mean, sure, there's still moments where I say we have to go to North Vancouver and we have to have cello kebab because that's my, you know, my motherland's food and we're going to eat this. <laughs> and so there's like, you know, a definite moment where we're trying to instill some cultural, get their palate. You could have, you could have seal kebab. That's right. <laughs> um, you know, and I'll make um, bison and bannock, but then we'll also have like basmati rice and, and our, you know, choresh and kebabs and so on. So it's very much like, because I was raised um, by my mom for the first four years of my life, she's a single mom. Um, and I was around my grandmother a lot. I have a great deal of Iranian Persian uh, culture back, cultural background and, and um, influence, I think. Mm. Um, because why? I think it's because someone took the time to teach me the language. Wasn't it your first language or it not? It was my Farsi? first. Yeah, Farsi was my first language. Mm. And then we traveled. So I think that the, the way that um, it's possible to raise, you know, little, little uh, world citizens is two things is that really focusing in on what what's contained in a language like Cree, Nehiawe, when it's such a beautiful language that that encapsulates relationships um, between like kinship, like myself to Doug, myself to my mother, to my father. It, it, there's also words that um, don't translate very well into English. Hmm. Um, you know, the thunder beings, you know, are talking to uh, the lightning people. And there's so kinds of concepts that are difficult to just encapsulate into English. So through teaching language and through powwow dancing, which the boys do, they're grass dancers, which is a type of healing dance. Wow. And through attending Baha'i children's classes um, and Baha'i summer camps, summer school and so on, it's been really a, a quite a wonderful journey. It's like Baha'u'llah says, raising up a new race of men. For sure. You know, Doug, I was thinking about what you were saying 
about love and quoting William Hatcher. And it sparked to mind the most recent letter from the Universal House of Justice, which was uh, addressed to the American Baha'i community, um, uh, specifically about racism. And uh, the there's a couple sentences about love that are just some of the most beautiful and powerful things I've ever heard in my life. So I've just felt compelled to read them. Ultimately, the power to transform the world is affected by love, love originating from the relationship with the divine, love ablaze among members of a community, love extended without restriction to every human being. This divine love ignited by the word of God is disseminated by enkindled souls through intimate conversations that create new susceptibilities in human hearts open minds to moral persuasion, and loosen the hold of biased norms and social systems so that they can gradually take on a new form in keeping with the requirements of humanity's age of maturity. You are channels for this divine love. Let it flow through you to all who cross your path. Infuse it into every neighborhood and social space in which you move to build capacity to canalize the society-building power of Baha'u'llah's revelation. What comes to mind when you hear those words? That's just so, that's really beautiful. And it's very much, uh, I think, in line with uh, what I've learned from William Hatcher and what I've learned about how we do have to move beyond mere tolerance. Do Do we need tolerance? Yes. You know, like we need to stop harming each other absolutely is going back to is going to our corners and stop fighting is that enough well it stops mm-hmm. harm but it's not how you know we want our our children to live in this world and so this notion of being in an in a loving relationship with others i think is an essential uh inspiration or ingredient for that that, that has to drive people when they're thinking about uh, the kind of world that they want to create in this time. I, th- I do hope that there will be a significant reaction to the kind of disunity that we've been seeing, the mm. kind of uh, wanton violence that is afoot in North America on, on both sides of the border uh, from uh, you know state violence against individuals and, and particularly uh, black and indigenous peoples in both Mm -hmm. the United States and Canada. Um, I spoke at a couple of different uh, Black Lives Matter rallies in in the NIMO because I was asked, uh, they they reached out to the local indigenous peoples and said, we we don't want to hold a rally without showing respect to the indigenous peoples. So would you be able to come and welcome us and say a few words? And I I told them, I said, you know, we have some commonality here and I want you to know that I love you and I will always work uh, in that way. Uh, we, we need to, you know, there's something wrong with what's going on here that's not acceptable. And we will work together uh, to, to repair that and to ensure that um, these uh, institutions of the state, like police, that have so much power and discretion, we will figure out how to reorient that in a new way uh, that that is premised on real respect, recognition, and love. That it isn't that it, because there it, it's it's abundantly clear that a shift is necessary. And so, 
when, when I hear that message, I, I've got to, I'm going to, I haven't seen that yet, but I mean, man, that, that is very powerful language um, that I think uh, is, is a full, uh, fully embraces the, the notions of William Hatcher and that basic idea that um, of, of the, the essential uh, imperative of love being the driving dynamic of human relations, that mm. tolerance is not enough. We have to go further to altruistic love. We have to Anissa, be. We have to be in love with each other mm-hmm. in in the future. Yes, 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 indeed. Um, Anissa, I, I I wanted to come back to uh, the work that you all do uh, with uh, the missing Indigenous women. It's uh, a lot of people don't know that this is uh, just an uh, an epidemic of of violence that is. Um, it's really unprecedented. Native women disappear, quote unquote, disappear. Uh, I don't even know if that's the right phrase to use, you know, at rates 10 times higher than, than other women. And, you know, 85% experience violence. And people don't, uh, they're not aware of this issue. How, what can the listener do to help? And what, what work again are you doing specifically um, with this issue? Thank you for this question. Um, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls is a human rights crisis in Canada that's been brewing for a number of years. It's become more front and center in media, um, but it, it's been a, a sort of this theme that I'm going to say haunts every every Indigenous family that I've come across. Um, yeah. I've always, for example, here's a quick example on my Facebook feed. I'll frequently see somebody's looking for their relative, their niece, who's 14, 17, 25, and has contacted police. And there has been sort of an, a, a non-response or a very minimal response. Yeah. Um, historically, I've, there's lots of my, I have family members who have, don't know where some of their relatives are, their mother, their family, and so on. Um, so this issue gets to the heart of, where where does Canada stand when it comes to the safety and well-being of indigenous women and girls? I can tell you, I don't know, I don't think there's a straightforward answer to that, but I can tell you that the way that we see, and by we I mean as a Baha'i and as an indigenous person, as a Persian woman, as an indigenous woman, I can tell you that in my circles, when I'm around my Cree and Métis family, these are the types of things I hear. Women are sacred. Women are life givers. Women matter. Our girls matter. They're precious to us. And this is the kind of um, what Doug has touched on about love and care and regard. You know, someone's mother, someone's grandma, kukum, my grandmother, nokum, my grandmother. You, These are matriarchal roles that would have historically been held in our family in our family system. Uh, women were literally the boss of teepees. Um, they had immense power. And it's through colonialism and systemic racism that I often say is baked into the system, whether we like it or not, whether we say I'm not a racist or not, we are immersed in an environment that where the system has, um, has not always been there for indigenous women when they reach out for help. So on a spiritual level for me as a Baha'i, I often think of that principle that uh, men and women are equal. And I think to myself, how could we 
in looking at the Canadian track record, if our women were truly equal, like if we we really cared about the well-being of Indigenous women and girls, meaning that we cared about where they were when they go missing, we care about them when they're born, are the remaining you know, healthy and connected to their mother's families and not being apprehended, um, caring for them as they become teenagers and women and um, entering education um, and so on. Like if we cared for women from the start of their life to the end of their life, what would that look like from a Baha'i perspective? Because we all know that the, the existing criminal justice system has for the most part failed Indigenous women. And so I'm, I think of places like the Tahara Justice Center in the United States, which has just been so influential and profound in uplifting the, the status of women who are vulnerable, um, whether it's women who are being trafficked, if I've understood this, their mandate correctly, um, yeah. all the way to women who are in violent situations and so forth. And I think to myself, are Baha'is ready and are we positioned to, number one, understand the ailment and the issues that Canada faces about Indigenous women? And then are we equipped to come up with a social action plan, one in which promotes the safety and well-being of an Indigenous woman or a girl? And that gets to community safety, but it also gets to individual wellness. So those are the things that cross my mind when I think about what I have been gifted with as far as Indigenous teachings about women being sacred life givers, but also knowing that Baha'u'llah has these deep, profound principles about the importance of women. Like, how could I bring those together? So the way it manifests for me personally, and everyone's different, is when I receive a file where there's an Indigenous woman who has been caught up in a criminal justice system, I start to take a bit of a different lens and I start to look at some of the pathways that would have led her to be caught up in the criminal justice system. What's interesting, and Crown Councils I've talked to agree with this, like uh, I think you would call them district attorneys or anyway, the governmental, the government lawyer, mm -hmm. is that oftentimes if women continue to be in those dangerous environments, uh, they actually can become a statistic. In other words, so a typical situation is there's a male and a female. There's, uh, there's Domestic violence has been rife. At some point, the female has fought back. Um, the lawyer is not willing to advance a self-defense argument. The lawyer is a legal aid lawyer. Um, hours are limited. So the woman con is convinced to enter a guilty plea for, for self effectively self-defense. So I get this report and I look at it and I say to myself, I can introduce new evidence, but I can provide social evidence, meaning I can provide this woman's story. Right. So the best thing I can do, the way that my sort of principles as a Baha'i and as an Indigenous person kind of coalesce, if you like, is at the time when I'm presenting this, you know, a roughly 20-page report to the judiciary, I'm outlining all the different risk factors which are in line with the same risk factors that the mur murdered and missing women and girls inquiry found. So whilst it might manifest criminally, and we might get all incensed that this person has, you know, there's an assault charge, this is real, we need to pause a little bit and ask why is this individual 
in a continuous state of being in, in, in vulnerable and being violated and being beaten up, how does society continue to advance the well-being and safety of a woman? So that's where I, I get really curious and I start to do my work around restorative justice. And fortunately, I've had judges that have agreed with me for the most part, and we've seen some really, really positive outcomes. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful to hear. It's time for us to be signing off. We've been uh, yakking for a long time. But before I do that, there's a question I'd like to ask all, all of my guests. Um, is there a, a Baha'i quote that means something to you that you'd like to share with us? Uh, perhaps it's a quote that uh, is a current spiritual struggle that you might be having or relating to that spiritual struggle. This, uh, you know, as I, I was studying the Baha'i faith, I uh, came across the hidden words, and uh, I believe it's the second hidden word. Um, uh, yeah, it's on page three to four. And I'll read it to you. The best beloved of all things in my sight is justice. Turn not away therefrom if thou desirest me, and neglect it not that I may confide in thee. By its aid thou shalt see with thine own eyes, and not through the eyes of others, and shalt know of thine own knowledge, and not through the knowledge of thy neighbor. Ponder this in thy heart, how it behooveth thee to be. Verily justice is my gift to thee, and the sign of my loving kindness. Set it then before thine eyes. Baha'u'llah. For me, that's always been a, a fundamental uh, quote and in, in, in teaching and prayer about uh, uh, that, that I find so essential. I've always liked that hidden word too. I mean, there's so much to unpack. It's You could do a whole college course just on, on that one quote. But. So true. But it, isn't, that, isn't that true of things that are so touching? You know, because they make your, they make you sort of want, it, it makes me ask myself, did I, do I look for this every day? Am I creating this in my, in my actions? Um, the, the specific part is by its aid, thou shalt see with thine own eyes and not through the eyes of others. Um, one might argue and say that my work is effectively whistleblowing uh, a system, criminal justice system that has perpetuated harm on indigenous populations. And so it takes a great deal of uh, strength, I guess, or focus to continuously be the source of this voice of reason, I, I guess, whereby I'm, I'm, I'm bringing forward, not as an advocate, but I'm bringing forward research uh, and data that supports the fact that an offender has experienced systemic background factors, not just in their individual life, but their whole familial system, their whole extended nation and community. And, and there's not always agreement in the courts that what I'm saying is um, should have any um, reliability because our system is built around individual conduct. And what we're trying to say is that it takes a systems approach to change our society. Hmm. So that's why this particular hidden word is a bit like a touchstone when you need to say the things that need to be said. I hope it stays that way. Well, the two of you are doing such extraordinary work in the field of justice. I really am in awe with what you do and what you have done. 
And uh, thank you so much for sharing your story and your insights with us today. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, participate in your podcast. Thank you. This was just wonderful. It was so nice to talk to you. So nice to talk to you. Make it so easy. Oh, come on. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.